It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Welcome in, everybody, to the Saturday, November 22nd edition of Celtics Beat. I'm your host, Larry H. Russell, here once again. Great show, not so great week for the Celtics. Chris Wallace, Memphis Grizzlies GM, will be our guest. I spoke to Chris a little earlier in the week. We'll obviously talk about his Memphis Grizzlies, best team in the NBA. Beat the Celtics last night, 117-100. Celtics, two losses during the week, one win. Of course, that one win came against that glorified NBDL team down there in Philadelphia. Two losses, not good. We'll go all the way back to Monday night against Phoenix. Really troublesome against Phoenix the way they finished that game because the possessions were absolutely atrocious. They gave Phoenix very easy baskets and finishing the game. But in my opinion, the most troublesome part about losing that game is it was their third home loss in a row. Even if you consider yourself a not the best team in the NBA or not so great, no matter who you're playing, there really isn't that much of an excuse to lose three home games in a row. That's really what terrible NBA basketball teams do. If you're halfway decent in the NBA, it's tough. It's real tough to kind of lose these three games in a row because you you see your team when they come back after a bad home loss. And I go back to earlier in the season. Celtics lost that tough game against Toronto, but they bounced back. They, they played that Pacers team real tough, and they came out with a good win. They came out strong. But all the way back to the Oklahoma City game, what, they had four days off, three days off, four days off, whatever it was. They got off to the great start, and they were flat the rest of the way. And then, obviously, they blew the big lead at Cleveland. They should have been pretty ticked off against Phoenix. Phoenix is a good team, very solid team, borderline playoff team. They'd be one of the best teams in the Eastern Conference if they were in the Eastern Conference. But that should have been the performance of the season for the Celtics. They should have really come out guns a-blazing instead. Mentally, it's just, it's just not there. And at the end of that game, those possessions, yet all the momentum in the world after that Jeff Green dunk. You pretty much think you're going to win that game. You got the home crowd behind you. Green's having a career night. You have other players playing really well for you. All the momentum in the world. And then you just hand Phoenix a basket at the, at the, at inside the one-minute mark. And that's pretty much... That's right where the Celtics came undone. Never were able to cut, recover for it. They had another bad defensive possession. That's just obviously a tune. We'll be getting into uh, a little bit more later in the show. Bad defensive possession. So they gave two two easy Phoenix baskets late in the game. Not good. Not good. And that was a game that I felt the Celtics were going to win based on the fact that they had just come off two tough home losses. Tough to lose three in a row at home, especially when they think they had about two days off themselves. They had nowhere to go. They were doing no traveling whatsoever. They were in the city of Boston for the whole weekend, and still they dropped that game and dropped it in the manner they did. This is going to become a recurring issue, obviously, now at the end of games. I obviously wrote my column on Rajon Rondo this week, talking about how you're either late to the party or missing the boat. You're missing the boat when you have sort of this basic criticism of him of, oh, he can't shoot. That's not the biggest issue here. The biggest issue here in the fact that he can't shoot is that it's clearly affecting him mentally at the end of these games. And that's why the Celtics have not just been a bad team execution-wise in crunch time this season. They've been pretty terrible going all the way back to 2010 when they had Pierce, Allen, and Garnett. They had three playoff games, three elimination playoff games. The Celtics had double-digit leads in the second half of all of those games. They lost them all. I, there's more details in the column. You can check it out up on CLNSradio.com. But this is a huge issue now with Rajon Rondo. And it's clearly getting to this team now mentally. 
just last night, after last night's loss, the Memphis Grizzlies 117-100 against a shorthanded Grizzlies team. A very good Grizzlies team, but a shorthanded Grizzlies team. I saw Jeff Green's interview with Abby Chin last night, and he said, oh, I'm tired of losing. And if you watch the interview, which you can catch up on CSNNE.com in their video section, what I take away, that was a distraught Jeff Green. That wasn't, oh, we're tired of losing. We're going to come out guns a-blazing. We got, I think they have Portland. They got Portland tomorrow night, 6 o'clock at the Boston Garden. We're going to come out strong against Portland, and that's it. He already seems just like, not shell-shocked, but it's clearly getting them, and it's getting them in the wrong way. And this is the, what I felt was going to happen coming into this season. Right now they have four wins. I don't think that's the worst thing. They've gotten some breaks with some injured players on opposing teams. I think five wins, why it wouldn't be a successful month, it wouldn't be the end of the world because they have three very tough games the rest of this month against Portland tomorrow night. And then they have, I believe, San Antonio. They have Chicago up there. I think five wins for the month of November would be a good month. But this is what I feared coming into the season. They had a tough schedule opening up a season. This was a young team. They were. All, I expected them to have issues at the end of games, especially with Rajon Rondo, and especially being you know a young team with no real go-to guy at the end of the games. I was worried this team would come out. They'd play hard. They have. They've, they've played hard in a lot of these games. But the tough losses would accumulate, as it did for sort of the Rick Pitino teams. If you remember going back to you know, 98, 99, they used to fight hard, but they lost all those close games, and then it got to them, and then it just started snow, snowballing from there. This is sort of my fear. I think this team was going to come out and play hard beginning of the year. They have, and I give Brad Stevens a lot of credit for that, and I give the players a lot of credit for that. But I was very concerned about how this team would execute at the end of games. My concerns have been real. The end of games have been disasters, to say the very least, catastrophes if you even want to take it a step further. And now it'll be interesting to see how this team responds. One of, one of my other fears was that this team has a lot of players that are close to each other talent-wise. What's going to happen now when, say, an Evan Turner starts losing playing time, as he should? That's a story for another day. Is he going to complain to the media like Courtney Lee did last year, which essentially forced Courtney Lee to be traded, and now Courtney Lee's having an exceptional season and a half in Memphis, is this going to lead to chemistry issues in this team? And will this just eventually lead to probably the downfall of this team where once this team sort of goes out west, this is when the season, this is where we're really going to know, just like we knew last year. They were hanging in there last year, a little below 500. Once this team goes out west, gets blown out west, they're going to get blown out out there. Now how will the team respond? Because once they got blown out out west last year, it was just, it blew up. Loss after loss after loss after loss. They got used to losing team ended up winning only 25 games or whatever it was and the close game started to become blowouts on the other end so is that going to happen with this team that's sort of my fear and that's why I had this team really only pegged for about 25 wins despite still not that bad of a start four and seven with a tough schedule but like I said November December they keep losing these close games then they go out west they get blown out out there how will the team respond but I want to go back to that Jeff Green interview that he did with Abby Chin. Quick snippet. I highly suggest checking it out. He obviously talked about the defense and just how he was shocked and not really. I mean, he, he just, I don't think he was shocked, but that's the vibe that you get away when you watch this interview. Just, he just really doesn't understand. That's just not a good thing. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't have any answers for him. Just, I'm tired of losing or her, excuse me. And going into the season, I loved what I was hearing from Avery Bradley and whatnot and some of these other players and obviously Marcus Smart, what we saw from him in the preseason. But defensively, it's just not there right now, ladies and gentlemen. Teams are shooting on average 48% from the field against them. Their defensive rating, I believe, is about 110 points per 100 possessions. Statistically-wise, this is actually one of the worst Celtics defenses in their history, and that's actually saying something because... What though his last outside of the Garnett years, his last 20 years, 25 years have been all that great. And statistically, this is one of the worst defensive teams they had. And you see a lot. I, I wrote a column now a few weeks ago now, about a week ago, about some of these players on the market that the Celtics should try to get. Roy Hibbert, it's Javale McGee or 
Larry Sanders. I think what's real scary about this team right now is is I now do not believe this team is one good defensive center away from even being a playoff team because one rim protector, if you really want to call it that, is just not going to be the difference between this historically bad defense to it becoming halfway decent. I mean, it's one thing if this is a bad defense or an average defense. It's not. This is one of the worst defenses in the league, and the reason why it's not the worst defensive in the league is because what you're seeing out there in Los Angeles. But getting back to that Jeff Green clip that I, once again, for the third time on this podcast, suggest going to CSNE.com and checking it out. Abby Chin was doing her job as a journalist, and she was trying to follow up with you know questions of why this is happening, why are you sick and tired of losing, why is the defense terrible. Jeff Green had no answers, and here it is, October, or November 22nd, 2014. This is the first time I'm a little wary of Brad Stevens because this is, this is what Brad Stevens needs to do. He has to get them to buy into some program, buy into the program, and execute the program because defensively, that's really all it is. It's execution and effort. That's just two things. Talent is three. Yes, it's the it's the dominant centers, the dominant big men that make you know your good defense an exceptional defense or an all time defense. But it's the coaching that should be able to make almost any player at least halfway decent defensively or respectable defensively. We shouldn't be seeing what we are now, where teams are routinely throwing up, uh, or players for that matter. What's it? Nine players, eleven players now have their were, have their season high against the Celtics, even though we're what eleven games in, into the into the season. You have eleven or twelve guys who have their season highs against the Celtics. You have this historically bad defense, statistically-wise, matched up against the rest of the teams in the history of the franchise. Part of this is coaching, guys. I mean, I hate to say it because I'm a huge Brad Stevens fan. I am positive he's going to work out in the long run here, hopefully shorter rather than the long run. But right now, here we are 11 games into the season. A real good part of this is Brad Stevens not really getting through to the players. or I don't know if you want to say it like that. I'm just basically saying point blank, defensively this team stinks, and coaching 1,000 times out of 1,000 plays a part in that. And right now, defense is not there. Will they get it turned around? I don't see any reason why they will. I can't imagine as Marcus Smart, as, as aggressive as he is, as much as I like his attitude and his demeanor, I can't see a rookie changing this whole thing around. It's going to have to be a collective, obviously, group effort. Definitely should probably start with the highest-played player on the team and Rajon Rondo. That's for a whole other show. But I'm very concerned. And last night against Memphis, you know, it was the same old, same old story. You had Marcus All, season high. John Luer, season high. Fourth-quarter defense, too. That's really the issue. I mean, the it's... The amount of easy baskets that Memphis was getting in crunch time was just, I mean, appalling. I'm sorry to sound so extreme, but it's usually at these times when teams start to tighten up, they put a little more effort into the defensive craft. Celtics team, I guess it's the complete opposite. Their defense gets worse as the game goes on. I don't understand why our brains and the players' brains, when we know something is coming to an end, like a game, we usually have a tendency to put more effort into whatever we are doing. But that's just not happening with the Celtics. In fact, it's the opposite. And yes, I am telling you right now, November 22nd, 2014, time to get very worried about this team. This season could come undone. This is a big week here for the Celtics. It starts tomorrow night against Portland. Yes, I know, another tough Western Conference team. However, I mean... One of these days, it's the regular season. You can catch teams off guard. You're desperate, apparently, at least from what I heard from Jeff Green. I think you got to f- try to find a way to win one of these games against Portland, Chicago, San Antonio. You should be able to find a way to dig deep and pull out something. But one thing this tough November schedule for the Celtics has given Celtics fans the opportunity of is to see some real NBA basketball teams. The Celtics have played very good teams this first pretty much month of the season, and obviously last night they played Memphis. Best record in the NBA. And a lot of people are surprised about Memphis. Like, wow, the Grizzlies, look at this. Can they do it? Funny thing is, Memphis has been 
as good as any team in the NBA has been these last four or five years. Maybe not as good as, say, San Antonio, but no one's really talked about this. Why, I don't know. Is it because maybe they play in Memphis and, you know, it's not the biggest market. It's not Chicago, Los Angeles. They also don't have a superstar, top three, top five talent in the NBA. But now they seem to finally be getting their due here and be getting at least their recognition, especially as a, champion, a championship contender, which they are. I was very impressed last night. Had the privilege earlier in the week to speak with, uh, believe it or not, old friend Chris Wallace, former Celtics GM, 1997 up until about 2003, remained in the organization until the summer of 2007, I believe, before he took the Memphis job. Chris has done a great job down there, and he's obviously a very busy man. Couldn't catch him on this Saturday morning today as we were doing the show right after the game last night. But I spoke with him earlier in the week. Probably actually under the assumption that the Grizzlies were going to win last night anyways. So it was actually no issue calling Memphis the best team in the league. But here we go. Here's my chat with Memphis Grizzlies GM Chris Wallace. I tell you what, before we get started with Chris, I have to say I finally have come full circle with Chris Chris Wallace. Remember... Over 12 years ago now, uh, the Sacramento Kings, Kings came into Boston. They gave the Celtics a beating. And I'm down there, and Mike Rotundi, I'm talking to Mike, and sure enough, Chris Wallace shows up. And, and Mike goes, oh, Jesus, Chris, here's the biggest fan of the Celtics. And obviously me not having you know, the respect or the courtesy, I just go right up to Chris. And Chris, I say, Chris, get Nick Van Exel and Ray for friends. <laughs> so, Chris, here we are 12 and a half years later. Now I can finally say, hey. Really nice to speak with you. Well, we got you half of your wish list. Right. I mean, yeah, we, we, there was, uh, it was a good run of the conference finals that year. No, I mean, you got Ray friends there for a little while. You remember? That's true. That's, that's true. But it wasn't that season when they really needed him. Uh, but, you know, you're right. LaFrance was there. Um, that was the year that they went to these conference finals. I remember following those trade rumors like they were yesterday. Now following trade rumors a lot different than they, different than they are today. But I, I remember listening to that. I remember listening to your radio show, and there were so many times I remember desperately trying to call your radio show. Like, should I call him up and just demand to him again to get Van Exel and LaFrance? But I thought I got my point across that day. Well, you know, I'm glad we had some listeners that show because the signal – was so weak with that station at the time that you literally couldn't get it two towns over. Um, I can't remember exactly what town we were in. We were a little bit north of Waltham. And uh, so I say you didn't have uh, a major signal by any means. Well, I was a Newton guy, so I obviously listened to that show pretty much every week. I think I remember it being every Thursday evenings. And you were on all the time, and obviously Leo Papil would fill in for you. But got to get to your work with the Grizzlies. You've been there now the last seven years. You've done a great job. You built quietly, and I say quietly because no one really talks about the Grizzlies like the Spurs, the Clippers, the Warriors. But quietly, one of the best teams in the NBA the last the seven years that you've been there. And one of the things that I find really interesting, and in a way to sort of tie this in with the Celtics, is. You have a lot of very good players on that team, but you've seen to have done it without that top three to five LeBron or Durant talent. You know, Danny Ainge, and we've had Rich Gotham on the show uh, uh, before, say pretty much, I mean, they've laid it straightforward. Their primary goal is to get a star or star player here in Boston again, like they did with Pierce Allen and Garnett, and make that transformative move. You've sort of done it from the ground up. You've been in Boston. You were to Memphis. Is there any real way to build a team? Well, I think you take what's given. It's sort of a sport cliche. You hear coaches say that all the time on the offensive end. You know, we take what's given. We'd love to have a star, too, that's a top three player in the league. But we can't suspend operations waiting for that Messiah to arrive. But we have to take the opportunities that are there and then take that team and run with it. Uh, I like to uh, use a line from Jack Welsh, former C, uh, CEO of General Electric. He used to say, you can't sit around and wait for a perfect plan, find a good plan, and then work it. And that's what we try to do here. You know, we've taken some players through the draft, other through free agencies, some trades. Uh, and fortunately, it's worked out for us because this last four years have been the most successful period in the history of the franchise. Obviously, our franchise doesn't go back as far and have as a list, lustrous history the Celtics, you know, only going back to the mid-'90s in Vancouver. Uh, but 
you have to keep things in perspective. We never won a playoff game here until 2011, let alone a series. Yeah, and like I've mentioned earlier, people just sort of forget how successful the Grizzlies have been. I mean, you mentioned 2011. That was the year uh, you guys knocked off San Antonio in the first in the first round of the playoffs. You were in the Western Conference Finals two years ago. You've been winning 50 games, I'd say, pretty much the last five seasons, four or five seasons. Why is it now, maybe it's a little different now with the great start and everything, but why is it that no one really talks about the Grizzlies like they can usurp the Spurs or even, you know, compete in the Western Conference when the fact is they've had, they have? Well, we've been in the Western Conference Finals two years ago. Uh, we've defeated the Spurs in the first round with a few eight seats to knock off number one in 2011. Uh, other than the Spurs series uh, two years ago when we were unfortunately swept, the other times that we've been knocked out of the playoffs, it's all been in the seventh game, uh, well into the second half of the seventh game of, 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 a, of a series. So we've been very competitive. We've beaten every team in the NBA in the regular season at one time or another during that point in time. And we've had players be honored at a very high level by the NBA. Zach Randolph and Mark Gasol have received all pro honors at times in the last four years. We've had all-stars with Gasol and Randolph. Gasol's been defensive player of the year one time. Former Celtic Tony Allen and Mike Conley have made the all-defensive team along with Mark Gasol. So uh, despite the fact that you may not see us frequently on national television, uh, we like to think we've got a pretty good team here and and a team that's going to be a real challenger in the Western Conference. Do you, you think you mentioned being a bit challenger? Now you are off to this great start. Do you think? Do you truly feel that this team is as good as any team in the NBA could could win a championship this year? Well, I, you know, we think we can definitely can compete for championships. Obviously, first of all, you have to get in the playoffs. Number one, number two, you're going to have to win three rounds of twelve games in the Western Conference, which is quite a difficult task before you even get into the Eastern Conference team that you're facing. So. You know, we we feel we have the potential to do so, but we're not fixating on that right now. It's the process. I mean, again, this is another so-called trite phrase you hear from coaches in all sports. You can't get ahead of yourself, particularly in the NBA. We've played 11 games so far out of an 82-game schedule. We've been healthy, and hopefully we continue to remain healthy. But you know, uh, we would love nothing more than to have a championship parade down Beale Street here in Memphis. And now going forward, obviously, you guys added Courtney Lee last year. Looks like a complete fleecing. He's been exceptional really ever since he's been there, and he's really broken out this year. Do you see maybe this team making another move? I mean, remember you go back to Boston, you guys added Rodney Rogers that year for the run. You got Courtney Lee last year. Do you see that this? it's very possible this team could address a weakness on this team? Well, you, you really can't forecast – and predict at this point in time, number because we're going to have a whole uh, slew of players that are going to enter the trade market on December 15th. They were signed over the summer. And teams are going to fall into the reality of where they are here, you know, probably around January 1, where which is either going to be a terrific year for us or a bad year. We need to create cap room for the future, maybe save money and jump away from electric tax. Everybody then has a more realistic view of where they are. So we're we're like every other team in the NBA. We're continually aggressive and searching out opportunities. But I can't sit here right now uh, in the middle of November and say we definitely are going to get a deal done between this point in time and the trade deadline on the third Thursday in February. We like our team right now, but like every team, you know, we have some weaknesses that could be shored up. Let's sort of get on because we are talking about trades. Obviously, the famous one you made, now we're going back seven years. You have to feel a little vindicated because we all remember, I mean, fairly or unfairly, and now we, we all know it's very unfairly, you got chastised in the media, the Stephen A. Smiths of the world. We all remember at the Pau Gasol trade. Well, we, you traded- you know, we also got, we, we also got uh, you know, put on a stick and marinated by people in our own business, too. You know, uh, Greg Popovich wasn't very happy with yep. us. Oh yeah, the, the Mark Cuban committee. or George Carl, and uh, you know, we've got you know hammered pretty good. But you know, we have to take care of our own business. Um, you know, I don't think it's everybody's place in this league to be critiquing what else goes on, and you know, in, in other cities. And we had a very unique situation here 
where our team had fallen out of annual participation in the playoffs. And in Memphis, the honeymoon had worn off after an 0-12 streak in the playoffs. Pal Gasol had broken his foot my last year in Boston, which is 2006-07 before I came here. And we tried everything to prop the team up during the 2007-08 season and the offseason, you know, bringing in Juan Carlos Navarro, who was Pal Gasol's uh, best friend in basketball and teammate on the Spanish national team, and a good player in his own right. Picked up Darko Milicic, you all know, in Boston to help bolster the front line. But right around the first of the year, it was obvious our team wasn't going anywhere. Uh, and, and Powell was rather dispirited. And the final thing in that equation, the whole decision-making process that put it over the top for me, was we're in the entertainment business. And the worst thing you can have in the entertainment business is apathy. It's even... Uh, a less preferable situation than having scorn of your, uh, your fans. And we were in a year here in Memphis where John Calipari and Derrick Rose were taking the Memphis Tigers college basketball team to a possible national championship. And our games compared to theirs, remember we played in the same arena, FedEx Forum. It was like a JV game in high school. Now then that they, they played the varsity come in. Uh, there we had horrible crowds. There was no energy or excitement in the building. And you come in the next day and you couldn't even get in FedEx form and the place was rocking. So I went to our owner at the time, the late Michael Heisley, and, and said, we got to do something. Even if we do go make a mistake here, we've got to do something to shake this up or we're just going to fade into oblivion here in this, in this city. And Pal Gasol was the only real chip we had to make a major change. And we got back a variety of assets, including you know, his brother, Mark, who's still with us today, cap rooms and draft choices. And the Lakers got a guy who helped push them into playoff, excuse me, championship contention. They basically got a couple titles with him. We got delayed gratification, which is very difficult to sell uh, in, in, in this instant analysis world we're in, you know, with all the various forms of social media and blogs and, you know, just, just, just so much coverage these days. But, you know, we had to do what we felt was right for this franchise, and this worked out. Well, you certainly did absolutely what was right with this franchise. I mean, I was even just surprised of it as well. But, I mean, do you really feel like that vindication? Do you really feel like, you know, yeah, I told you. Well, I, you know, so we had the, we got the cap. I'm not a guy that's in. Um, yeah, I'm not a guy that's, you know, really concerned about vindication or reviews. I mean, after all, I've worked in Boston, so you have to have a pretty thick skin. And you know, we're trying to win games. We're trying to pack the house and uh, get people excited about this team, which they have in this city. This city's a, the best basketball city in the whole South. The, the roots of the game are very deep here, going to the high school levels. We've had some great players like the Penny Hardaways, the late Larry Finches, and uh, Memphis Tigers on the collegiate scene have been a national power for close to 50 years. And there are even three ABA teams here before the NBA came to Memphis in 2001. So once we gave people something to get excited about, we know they would rally. And sometimes when you move a, a, a major player, it's not the old you know, Mickey Mantle for Hank Aaron type things when we were kids when you're flipping baseball cards. Sometimes you have to get a variety of assets, and that was, we felt, the best way to go. Draft picks, the rights to Mark Gasol, who's obviously become a major player in the league, and then cap room, which at the time, you don't know the players that are actually going to be filling that cap room down the line, but we had confidence that somebody of an, of an impact would come in, and that player was Zach Randolph. Randolph yeah. And we were fortunate to pick, be able to pick up in an imbalanced trade in terms of the finances back in 2010 because we had the room. Uh, so at one time, a few years ago, we had, I think, nine players on the team that you could directly trace to that trade. Uh, and, it, and it's helped turn our franchise around. Now, the Lakers, they won titles with Pau Gasol, obviously. Uh, but are, are we supposed to not do a trade because another team may profit? Well, we got to do what's best for our franchise, regardless of, of the impact elsewhere. And you have to give it to you because you certainly did. I mean, that trade pretty much – you're right. That, that trade built this team. That trade built the team that's won the 50 games, you know, the last three or four years, that's been to the Western Conference Finals, that is one of the elite teams in the league that's challenging for a championship. 
Obviously, the key piece of the trade is Marcus Gasol, who has established himself as one of the best centers in the NBA. Big rumor going around Boston. I've talked about it as well. I heard about it. Uh, one of the many, many people have heard about it as well was that Rondo had asked the ownership or asked the management to get Marcus Gasol. Everyone says the Spurs want Marcus Gasol. Everybody that's that seemingly going to have cap room this summer wants Marcus Gasol. Is everything going as planned to re-sign him and bringing him back in Memphis? Because that's pretty much the only team he's played well, for. Well, I'm sure I'm sure they all do want Marcus Gasol. He's you know. <laughs> One of the elite centers in the league, if not the best, the best passing big man. He's your one defensive player of the year. He's helped take our team to unprecedented heights as far as team success. He's a phenomenal teammate. But Memphis is the only city that Marcus Gasol has known in the United States. So he came here in high school when his brother Powell first started to play for the Grizzlies before returning to Spain to embark on a professional career. And we have every intention on re-signing Marcus Gasol. Uh, so those people better find another player, another target. Uh, because that's priority number one for our franchise is when we have the opportunity to ink him to a long-term contract. Well, that was pretty definitive there. I definitely also want to get to this topic. <laughs> I mean, and how and how could you not too? Because, like you said, I mean, he is he is the best, pretty much player that's going to hit the market, and how much he means to that franchise. I would say he's probably been the most important player for the Grizzlies franchise, and the I think they've been in Memphis about what, ten years now. So. No, it's, it's, it, I think it's about 14 this year, um, right around 14. And, and we, so we don't have a long history. Obviously, this is not the type of history like you enjoy in Boston with the Celtics and, and all the other professional teams. But uh, Mark Gasol would be right up there on our Mount Rushmore if we, if we had one of the most popular players in the history of this franchise, you know, along with Zach Randolph, Shane Batty, who's retired. And probably has put Tony Allen up there too, your old friend, uh, who has just captivated this town since he came over signing a free agent contract to us in the summer of 2010. Uh, and Mike Conley has grown on our fan base as well. It started slow when he was taking the fourth pick out of Ohio State in 2004. He's just gotten better and better. Now he's clearly one of the top ten point guards in the country and, and a guy that we can count on when needed to take games over down the stretch. And you mentioned Tony Allen. He can still bring it, huh, especially defensively? Well, Tony Allen helped transform our team defensively and bring a toughness that we still have five years later. Um, the Grizzlies were not a very strong defensive team prior to his arrival. We've become an elite defensive team since he came over from Boston, and, and he learned so many great lessons. There was the Celtics with Doc Rivers and Tom Thibodeau. Um, Tony tells us that Tom Thibodeau was responsible for the defensive player he is today, what he learned playing for the Celtics on that 2008 championship team, of mainly about the necessity to study the game plan as far as the schemes and the plays run by the opposing team, the individual tendencies of who he's going to be matched up against. And Tony has just really captivated our fan base in a way probably – a defensive-oriented, non-all-star player has not in, in, in any particular NBA city in quite some time. I mean, during the playoffs, you know, you may find it's hard to believe from, you know, watching him early in his career in Boston. Uh, you, you go down the uh, the main business section of Memphis, and a few years ago, I remember there's a, a poster on the side of a building about three to four stories high of Tony Allen during the playoffs. And so he, he has just been uh, very, very important to our team in turning around um, the passions of a fan base, which had drifted away from the Grizzlies for several years. And when you brought him over, obviously his defense was imperative. And you mentioned how the Grizzlies almost overnight went from one of the worst defensive teams into one of the better defensive teams in the league. Did maybe his veteran presence or veteran experience at that point mean anything? Because while he was on that 2008 title team, he actually didn't play a huge role on that team. It was really more that 2010 team where he right, was the guarding team that went to the LeBron, game seven against the Lakers. He yes. was guarding LeBron and Kobe and played exceptional defense on them. I mean, how much do you think intangible-wise did Allen bring over, especially coming off of that summer and that playoff run that he had that year? Tony brought a huge amount of intangibles and intensity. And just, you just, when you look at why a team is successful, it's more than just numbers and offensive production and things you can touch. You know, there is toughness, intangibles, chemistry, 
Uh, there's, there's so many things that, again, you can't quantify. And Tony brings them over in a big way. And he probably modern-day version of ML Carr as far as a cheerleader on the bench, too. When he's out of a game, man, he is really into it and waving his towels and, and, and just so excited for the success of his teammates recently when Courtney Lee has had a terrific run and he hit that game-winning uh, shot against Sacramento last week. Tony was his biggest fan, practically jumping in his lap when he came off the floor. So uh, we would not be where we are today if, if Tony Allen had not been with us the last few years. I mean, that's just really some strong words, really, for Tony Allen. It's funny because I remember when they brought him in. If I had a, My Tony Allen story was I remember I was watching Game 5 of the 2008 Finals and Doc pulled an ice-cold Tony Allen off the bench. I hadn't seen the floor in, since the Reagan administration, it seemed like, and all of a sudden he was <laughs> off the bench. But then that year uh, in the playoffs, when he checked LeBron, he checked Kobe. I mean, he, he locked outside of a one quarter. Uh, where Kobe went off for like 25 points or scored 17 straight Laker points in the fifth game in Boston. I mean, he just locked Kobe up. And we all, and he was sort of like this Boston secret because, I mean, no one really talked about Tony Allen like he was Bruce Bowen at the time. But then he had that great playoff run, and now he's gone, played for Memphis, and he's pretty much guarded, he's done whatever you guys have asked for him. I mean, it really is amazing that he is sketch this career for himself I'm sure I'm sure you were probably watching the Celtics that entire run you saw how well he played well I was part of the group that was there when we drafted him and you know I was there through the first couple of years you remember when he toured ACL oh yes I uh, on that, that on that dunk on that boarded dunk after the whistle was blown on uh, and, and I think it was a January game and so uh you know I was you know had a rare seat to watch his development, maturation as NBA player. He's been a three-time all-defensive honoree with us. And so, and more than that, he has played a huge part in rekindling the passion of our fan base. He's just such a popular player here. He's a Memphis-type player. Yeah, I remember that, too, when he did tear his AC on the dunk. You're right. I'm pretty sure it was a January game. I know it was against the Pacers. And if you remember, up in, like, Play, up until that game, he had like a three, two-week stretch where he was averaging like 18 points a game. I mean, he was breaking out, and he was playing well. He tears his ACL. Then he was on that 08 championship team. Was never really – I mean, he was in and out of the rotation all year, which kind of doesn't really say much because Doc Rivers never had a rotation on that team. It was amazing the team won a championship without a rotation. But it really wasn't until 2010 where he got it back, and he was never the offensive player that he was that year. But – Obviously, you mentioned your Boston career. You were with the Celtics. Uh, you were obviously you were Ten the years. GM. Yeah, you were the GM, and then obviously Danny Ainge came in, and then you sort you sort of worked with Danny for about like two to three years, if I recall. Four years. Four years. Wow. Yeah. So longer than pretty much right up until the um, Garnett trades and all that, right? Yes. Uh, when I left, the Garnett trade happened just shortly after I left. So uh, I. After I left the Miami Heat in 1997, they won a championship too. So I said, the quickest way to oh, know a team is eight years after. Yeah, but I said if you hire me somewhere in the future, you're going to win a championship. I will probably will be there, but you're you're guaranteed to win one. Well, it was sort of the reverse Chucky Brown jinx. I remember there was a player back in the 80s and the 90s. It was like wherever like Chucky Brown left, he like put a curse on the team. It was Houston, but. You know, you had you had a we had a long career. You came in, I think, like a, th- a few months after Patino was hired. He yes. hired you May of nineteen ninety seven. It was obviously, I mean, it was obviously a very interesting time and everything. But you had sort of a good run there. The team got to the conference finals. That was a very enjoyable team for me. That two thousand and two Celtics team was like the equivalent of the nineteen sixty seven Red Sox. I had I'd grown up watching terrible Celtics teams outside of when I was very young. The majority of my life, I was watching awful Celtics teams, and then they had that fun run, and it was just sort of like brought some fresh energy. But it was it was ups and downs. How do you sort of look back on that ten year run you're in Boston? Well, I think our, uh, during the time I was in Boston, well, we you know I'm a guy that got uh, nailed frequently in the court of public opinion during the period of time I was there. I remember, but you, you know, remember I, the guts I was to come part on the radio. of the. Re- 
Yeah, yeah, it's you know, with Rick Pitino, obviously that was a very controversial era, the three and a half years that he was there. And then uh the brief period of time that uh I was technically in charge before the new ownership group came into Banner seventeen, uh ownership group which came in I believe on uh two thousand and two yep. on December thirty first and fully took control and then they brought in Danny Ainge to run the team uh that spring. So I was a you know, a controversial figure up there. But I look back with great pride on some of the things we accomplished. Number one, the Patino group did bring in Paul Pierce. And that was a gutsy uh, move, too. People forget about that. Well, I don't know. It, it wasn't a gutsy move. When you, it, 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 it wasn't a hard decision to choose him, but we didn't have to choose him. You didn't work him out. And Paul, no, we didn't work him out. We had no medical. We, only one of our group, Lester Connor, who was assistant coach, ever even met him. And we just took him. I mean, and – where is he ranked now? What's the number two leading scorer in the history of the franchise behind John Havlicek? And, you know, a player who's certain to have his jersey retired ended up in Springfield one day. So it was MVP of the 2008 uh, finals. So I'm proud of that. And in the post Patino era, as part of groups that brought in you know, Ray John Rondo, Kenry Perkins, we discussed Tony Allen, Delonte West, Leon Poe. Uh, that were all contributors, if not starters, some of them on that 2008 championship team. And then our group brought in Al Jefferson in 2004. And without Al Jefferson, there's no title in 2008 because you couldn't pull the deal with Minnesota. Uh, You had to have him to bring back Kevin Garnett. So, you know, I'm proud of the time I was there. And it was a fabulous uh, period for me personally and professionally to be with the Celtics franchise uh, with that illustrious tradition. And I got to work with Red Auerbach uh, from 1987 up until his death. And that was, you know, something that I'll remember for a lifetime. And I got to rub shoulders with the likes of Tommy Heinsohn, who just was fabulous for, to me and my family and all the great players. And there's not too many franchises where you can go to a game and you look over at the broadcast table, there's a Hall of Famer and Tommy Heinsohn, a John Havlicek may be out in the crowd. You know, a JoJo White's working for the team. <laughs> there's Robert Perry. She go on and on. Uh, the, the history is just so immense with the Celtics that uh, it was just an opportunity that not too many people have to work in this league to be with that franchise. And I treasure that decade that I was there in Boston. The man has spoken, Chris Wallace, general manager of the Memphis Grizzlies, best team in the Western Conference. Chris, thank you so much for joining us on Celtics Beat this week. It's been my pleasure, and I'd like to say hello to all my friends up in uh, in the Boston area, all the Celtics fans, particularly Mike Rotundi there on the front row. Uh, well, he will certainly be listening. Chris, thank you so much. Take care. And we'd like to thank Chris Wallace for taking time out of his busy work week this week. To discuss his Memphis Grizzlies on the show. Excellent interview. There's so much to talk about. Right off the bat, what sort of jumped out at me was how quick he was, obviously, to defend that Pau Gasol trade. And I know it's been, what, seven years now, coming up on February 1st, which was when that trade was made, February 1st, 2008. Obviously, the first two, three years of that trade, he got killed. And I was actually trying to get, I was getting ready to, you know, compliment him and say, well, not me, say I'm sorry. Maybe I guess I was going to say I'm sorry on the behalf of the Stephen A. Smiths of the world. And even the Greg Popoviches of the world who just lambasted him just immediately after that trade was. But he was just so quick to defend it. I never got the chance. I never got the chance to say things like, you know, it was a great trade. You obviously got Marcus All, You got the draft choices. You cleared cap space to sign Zach Randolph. So I never got the chance. He was just, I mean, feistiness, I guess you got to love it. But, you know, yeah, I mean, here we are. It's uh, seven years coming up, uh, six and a half years. I remember the trade was made on February 1st. I have that ingrained in my mind. I guess I don't know if that's a good thing or bad thing. But, yeah, obviously I remember where I was that February 1st, 2008. And, oh, as a big, big Celtics fan back then, I was disappointed and upset. Like, you know, great. You know, now the Lakers are going to be a great team. It didn't look like they gave up much for them. But, you know, Memphis has been – one of the best teams in the NBA these last four to five years now. And no one really talks about that. As I've mentioned so many times, I mentioned throughout the interview, I mentioned a little bit in the opening there. How everyone just says, you know, just thinks the best teams in the West, they say obviously the Spurs, but then it's obviously Thunder, maybe not this year. It depends the injury situation with uh, Westbrook and obviously more importantly Durant. 
But everyone goes Spurs, Thunder, Clippers. That's sort of been the pick every for every one of these last three to four years. Yet Memphis has been pretty much just as successful as any of those teams outside of obviously the Spurs. They've done as much in the playoffs, if not more in the playoffs, than I know definitely the Clippers. I mean, Oklahoma City made the finals that one year, but that was with James Harden. And that's certainly a different team than they, what they had a few years ago. Memphis has been together now for... Quite some time. They have a good core. They won, I believe, like 56. I think it was 56 games a few years ago. They were in the Western Conference Finals. They've beaten the Spurs in the playoffs. They've beaten the Thunder in the playoffs. They've beaten the Clippers in the playoffs. Should have beaten the Clippers in the playoffs twice, but they'll take, I'm sure they'll take once. They've beaten all these teams in the playoffs, yet no one really gives them their due. I'd say this year, I know they lost up in Toronto that other night. I'd say this year, they're, they're, as of now, they're the best team in the NBA. Will they be the best team in the NBA in June? I'm not sure, but I wouldn't be surprised. I, I, I would not be surprised if the Memphis Grizzlies win the championship. I like how they're built. And I remember having a conversation with Chris um, at a different time, and he had mentioned how what's, good about, what's great about his team is that they have such a good inside game. Because of that, allows them to keep them in games all the time. And he's true. It's like having a good running game in the NFL. You could have a quarterback who's just off. He's just not making the throws. But that running game, a lot of the times, is always there for you. It can always keep you in the game. So it's sort of like having a good defense, obviously. Same thing with his Grizzlies. You know, if they're not making outside shots, they can take advantage of the, you know, the boards. They can play good defense. They can get easy points around the basket. They're always going to be there. And one thing that I think no one really talks about with this Grizzlies team, and I mentioned just a few minutes ago, They've been together now for four years. He talks about guys like Tony Allen and what they brought to the table, not on the court, but off the court. And that chemistry is such an undervalued part, of, especially about basketball. Usually when you see teams in basketball, the 2008 Celtics are the exception of just a team put together one year and winning a championship. You see it all the time, especially in baseball. You saw the 2013 Red Sox. You know, they signed a bunch of guys. It worked out. They made it one of the World Series. Uh, a team that I remember really well was the 97 Marlins. Uh, Wayne Heisinger went out and just played basically video games for December and January and bought a World Series. They put it all together in one World Series. You really don't see that happen in basketball. You, te- you see teams grow. You remember how long it took Chicago to break through, how long it took Detroit to break through back in the 80s, uh, Chicago and Detroit. And then that Lakers team with Shaq and Kobe. Yeah, they won the three championships. They were dominant. I mean, you remember all the times they got swept in the playoffs or they would lose early in the playoffs. Same thing with LeBron. I mean, it took him seven years. I'm named, Now I'm naming the elite players and the elite teams in the league, but even the elite guys, it takes some time. This Memphis team has a big advantage in that they have been together now for four years. They've been through the battles now for four years. And now they're seemingly putting it all together. They're, in my opinion, the best team in the NBA, record-wise with the best team in the Western Conference. They could make a serious run. They're, they're, they're built from the ground up. They have everything they need. And you really got to give Chris Wallace a ton of credit for making some solid moves uh, along the way. Tony Allen is one that jumps right off the bat, signing him for pretty much cheap money, taking him away from the Celtics after having that great playoff run a few years ago. And then having the guts on that mark to pull that Paul Pau Gasol trade when the whole world was killing him for it. And, and I'm here to, to speak for the rest of the media. I mean, it's been seven years now. Well, no one really has come up to say to Chris Wallace, we're sorry you made an excellent trade. Everyone just says, oh, well, that Marc Gasol, he's a great player. People forget how they obviously got Marc Gasol. And now that we're on the topic of Marc Gasol, obviously I had brought up that uh, Rajon Rondo. I heard some, some things that Rajon Rondo has He's very vocal uh, in terms of personnel decisions now. Whether they're listing him, I don't know. But we'll get in this real quick, obviously. But obviously, the big story is Wajon Rondo, are they going to pay him or whatnot? In my opinion, from what I've been hearing, I think they're going to make a run at him. Whether they make a max contract offer, I'm not sure. But they kind of think he's a part of the long-term plans. And the reason why I, I say this is because I've been hearing that. You know, Rajon Rondo's been talking to members of management, and he had mentioned players that he wants to play with, and he had mentioned Marcus Sol as one of them. Now, from what I take away from that interview, I highly doubt there has been conversations between members of Celtics management and members, members of Memphis management because Chris pretty much made it 
clear that it is priority number one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and a hundred to re-sign Marcus All this offseason. And why wouldn't he? Obviously, he's the best defensive big man or second best defensive big man in the game. The guy who's anchoring that team, pretty much Mr. Memphis Grizzly, the most important player in the franchise. So while we all knew that something was pretty obvious, I guess I guess it was good to get that cleared up. And I guess now Rajon Rondo is going to have to look. For some new possible teammates, because I know he's mentioned a few players like Josh Smith, Rudy Gay, who was just re-signed by Sacramento, by the way. And Marcus Gasol was one of them, too. Celtics management, from what I have heard. So totally unrelated to the conversation I had here with Chris on the show. It should get, I guess that it is a little bit of an interesting angle now that most of these players that Rondo has named to Celtics management, or reportedly, or unreportedly, Named to Celtics management is now yeah, they're pretty much off the market, especially Josh Smith, right? There's please, there's no way the Celtics are going to trade for him. Now let's I think get into some of the um, Celtics conversation we had with Chris. We were talking about that Paul Pierce draft and all everyone hindsight wise, the Pierce pick was an obvious pick, and I actually and even Key Chris said it. You know what? That was an easy pick. We had to do it. I would, you know, I've always argued that that wasn't the easiest pick, as he mentioned in the interview. No medical records, no work, no, no private workouts. He saw Pierce pretty well. They probably have some. They've watched probably a little bit more than us. But it sounds like that those guys, Patino and uh, Leo Papil and, and Chris Wallace and everyone that was back in that Celtics war room back then, I guess assistant coach uh, Jimmy O'Brien, I mean, they saw as much about his Pierce as, as we did, right? We were watching the NCAA tournament that year. I think that was the year they lost to Rhode Island in the second round. They watched, you know, Pierce's career. They, they probably watched Pierce, obviously, a little more than us, but they never had any private workouts. They never had any, you know, private medical information or anything, and they needed to hit that pick. They could not come away empty-handed. They had a bad draft the year before. They ended up having bad drafts after. The Pierce pick was the only real good selection of that, of that era, they needed to hit it. They did. It was pretty much the building block of the 2008 title team. It was a long way from that, obviously. It was about 10 years after the fact. But, hey, they got Pierce in place. And it was funny. We were obviously talking about how he got nailed in Boston for some of the moves he made. Was it a little up and down of Boston those years? I, obviously, it was. I, it was... <laughs> Those were interesting times. It's fun. And those guys, I, I, you know what? I have to give them credit, especially Chris Wallace. He defends his record to death. And, you know, the day that really stuck out for me, I had mentioned how Chris had a radio show. And, you know, what would it be like now if Bill Belichick had a radio show or Danny Ainge had a radio show? Chris Wallace had a radio show. He was on every week. I was pretty sure it was, there were Thursday nights, which I think that would make a lot of sense as the Celtics really didn't play Thursday nights. They never really have. I believe they were Thursday nights, like 7 o'clock. He would be on for an hour. He'd take callers. And the famous day that Vin Baker was suspended indefinitely was a Thursday. And I remember it was a Thursday morning. I had read the Boston Globe. I had read it in my math class in high school. Of course, I'd never paid attention to school. That's why I'm hosting a podcast. I remember reading I said, oh, my goodness. Well, I, I, I highly doubt that Chris Wallace's radio show is going to be on tonight. He ended up hosting the show. And you can imagine that the callers weren't exactly, well, geez, you know, that was a tough break you got there, Chris, losing out of Baker. It was, uh, that was an interesting show. I wish we could go back somewhere in the WWZN, I believe their station was, the Zone, 1510 The Zone, and dig up those archives. But credit to Chris Wallace for coming on the show that night. And I give him credit for defending his record. Uh, there, there's probably there's many moves where I would have said, told said Chris, if I especially saw him face to face, I would have said, uh, "What about this?" And you know the that and this draft and obviously the Baker trade. But he said it over the years. He and he just said it on the show how proud he was. He was in time in Boston. How much he enjoyed his time in Boston. So, you know what? I'm not going to speak for all Solix Nation and say, "Well, I'm happy you enjoyed your time in Boston, Chris," but. I'll speak for me. I'm very happy that he enjoys his time in Boston, and I give him all the credit in the world now for, built for pretty much being the architect of this Memphis Grizzlies team over the last five years. And you can make the argument, dare I say it, that Chris Wallace has been as good as any executive has since the turn of the decade. You really can. And just look at the results of how good Memphis has been. Yes, the team in Memphis, not Miami, not Los Angeles, not Chicago, not New York. Memphis, I think people forget about that, how good Memphis has been since pretty much the turn of the decade. All right, so once again, I'd definitely like to thank Chris Wallace for joining us on the show. 
Talk plenty of Celtics, talk plenty of Memphis Grizzlies, talk a little NBA. Let's get a little more NBA topics. Time to go around the NBA in five. Washington Wizards took down the Cleveland Cavaliers last night. Three losses in a row for the Cavaliers. Five and six on the season, sitting below 500. Time to panic, time to trade Kyrie Irving, time to uh, worry about Kevin Love leaving for Los Angeles and free agency. Yes, I know, I said at the beginning of the season, Cleveland will be probably a lock for 65 wins. I'm still buying on that team. You know what? I guess whatever it is with LeBron James, it takes time for teammates maybe to figure it out, figure him out. Because remember, go back to 2010, 2011, the Miami Heat were 9-8. They never even really got it going that year, I believe, even though they wound up in the NBA Finals. It wasn't really even until the following year where they really developed good team chemistry. But they were 9-8 that first year. Now the Cavaliers are 5-6. and six. First off, you don't have to be worried. They're they're going to be at worst a two or a three seed, if not even make a good run in making that number one seed. I mean, they could easily go on a huge run in the second half here. They have way too much talent. They still have, you know what, I don't think he's the best player in the league anymore. I think Anthony Davis is. They still have the second best, the third best player in the league in LeBron James. They're still playing in a bad conference. They're still going to go on a run. Let's give this to at least... January 15th, that's just an obligatory day where we can start worrying about the chemistry issues or how LeBron's fitting in with Kyrie Irving. If this team's still at 500, then I'll be absolutely shocked and amazed. I just don't see that happening. But speak, we were talking about the best team in the East, Toronto Raptors beating the Milwaukee Bucks last night by 41. Are they the beasts of the East? I don't expect them to be in the NBA Finals. I'm not even sure they'll be in the Eastern Conference Finals. So, hey, are they sort of like the Indiana Pacers from these last few years where they incrementally got a little bit better over these last few years, but they just didn't have enough elite talent to really break through and make huge playoff runs of the NBA Finals? Beast of the East, I guess right now they're a really nice team. Their point differential, I believe, is over 10. I mean, they're having a ton of solid wins, especially when you beat a team by 41 as they did last night. But I'm not ready to call them the best team in the Eastern Conference. This is still November. We don't really care about November in the grand scheme of things. Are they one of the best teams in the East? Yes. But if I think that they played out West, they'd be like a 5 or a 6 seed. I think the only team with any real potential in the Eastern Conference is Cleveland once they get things put together. Which, once again, for the 10th time, I believe they will. And now going all the way from the top all the way to the very bottom, Philadelphia 76ers. Papa John's, they uh, changed the promotion from every time the 76ers win a game, you get some deal on a free pizza or whatever, whatnot. Now it's all the Sixers have to do is score, not 100, 90 points. Talk about lowering the standards. I don't have to go on a big diatribe as everybody else is doing by saying, oh, the Sixers are a disgrace. But, I mean, we because we already know the Sixers are a disgrace. In fact, you already saw Brett Brown come out today and he even said you know this wasn't the plan it wasn't supposed to be like this in year two he has accepted the fact that yes last year they were going to sort of basically mail it in for that draft pick but this wasn't just going to be some ongoing thing and Sam Hinkie saying hey Brett yeah until we uh, get we fluke our way into some amazing superstar player you're just going to have to suck it up and deal with it that's just a debacle there they'll never get things turned around until they actually start taking things seriously they're just poisoning the well with this idiotic and foolish way of building a team, hoping and praying for ping-pong balls and hoping and playing said ping-pong brawls are going to give them some Jesus Christ superstar, such as like a Kevin Durant, who's actually out with an injury right now, but he just signed a deal with Sonic, a fast food joint, and I think his agent came out and said, when it comes to fast food, Kevin Durant's a Sonic guy. I mean, are you kidding me? This is just more crap. Pay these guys... That's what I think is a little bothersome because, I mean, I'm not, maybe Kevin Durant really does eat Sonic fast food. However, I highly doubt it considering the physical condition that he is in and the physical condition that he needs to stay in. You can't be devouring fast food and expect results. In fact, it's just going to really just tear apart your body. So you'll see probably a commercial Kevin Durant jamming down some burger, but I'm sure as he's recording it, he's just spitting it out. Lastly, we want to get to this real quick. Carlos Boozer still thinks the Lakers can fight for the eighth playoff spot. Carlos, 140 points last night. Dallas Mavericks lose by 34 points it was. Like I said earlier in the show, the only thing that's really preventing the Celtics defense from being magnified is how poor it is. Is 
what we're seeing out there in Los Angeles. In fact, it seems like a new night. It's a new night of futility defensively-wise for the Los Angeles Lakers. They have really come undone. I thought they'd be a little more competitive than this, even though they have this poor roster. I thought they'd fight a little harder under Byron Scott. They're obviously not. Probably going to end for Byron Scott a little earlier than expected, but that's a mess out there in Los Angeles, just like it is in Philadelphia, and I guess just like it is for the Boston Celtics, but that's going to do it for another edition of Around the NBA in 5, and that's going to do it for this week's edition of Celtics Beat. Music for Celtics Beat was provided by Chuck Dietz, Ostravex, and Stefa Gatto. Be sure to follow us on social media. Our total handle is Celtics underscore beat. And you can like Celtics beat on CLNS radio on Facebook to keep up with the show. We would absolutely love to thank our guest, Memphis Grizzlies GM, Chris Wallace. Of course, the old Celtics general manager. Very good old friend. It was a pleasure having Chris on the show. Look forward to doing it again. For our staff writer, Eddie Santiago. For myself, the executive producer and host of the show, I'm Larry H. Russell. We'll see you guys next week. Callie, Warren Shaw, the baseline guy, real special guest. They're going to have Kevin O'Connor of Celtics blog coming in. Can't wait to have Kevin come in. My favorite Celtics columnist on the web. Check out Kevin's stuff at CelticsBlog.com. Highly recommended. And certainly highly recommended to catch Kevin next week with the baseline guys on Celtics Beat. Heard exclusively on CLNS Radio.